Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is the thing, in my opinion, and many others' uh, opinion as well, of what needs to be healed. It's our, our deep disconnection from each other and from the natural world. And when you work on that level, when you go the opposite, things start to change. Um, and you want to, when you realize this deep interconnection, this deep interrelationship, this deep livingness, all of a sudden you don't want to harm anything. You want to heal things. You want to respect things. You want to revere, shouldn't even say things, you know, you want to, um, uh, you want to thank all these living beings around you and try and help in their regeneration and the continual vitality and the sustenance and, and the love. It's just such a different shift. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. It's it's going towards one way or the other. As I talked about in the book, we're approaching a crossroads. And so um, it has many of this, this, this ideology of, of fragmentation also takes form in our mind, but I'll, I think I'll cut it. I'll cut it there just to explain your question. All right, Lookup listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Lookup Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein, and as always, thank you so much for listening along. Thank you for your contributions to the Lookup Patreon community and the Lookup Facebook page. Thank you for your support and your comments and your feedback and for responding to the newsletter uh, this week I wrote about why it's important to seek dissenting opinions, uh, especially in these times when we are all very clearly living in information silos um, determined by our own biases via social media algorithms. It's important to proactively engage with those who disagree with you. And can we separate the idea from the person? Can we continue to be friends with someone that holds different ideas than we do? Can we agree to disagree but still be living in harmony? I think that remains to be seen. I think that's why this feels like one of the most existential elections that I've experienced in my lifetime. The inability for us to come together on shared issues, even fighting an invisible threat like COVID-19. You'd think we'd see our nation rally together, but instead it's... uh, more politicalization, more polarization, more hate. Uh, and we can't even agree on the most basic principles of what it means to be decent humans. But what I think is important is that there, we do have the ability to choose a different path. We do have a, the ability to choose to seek out the others, to focus on our shared strengths, our shared love, our shared pains, um, what really makes us human, you know, the common case of humanity. And there's one tool that we can use uh, that brings us deeper into that state of interconnectedness, and that is the tool of psychedelic substances. And of course, this is not just a blanket promotion of psychedelics, but uh, this episode is one of a two-part interview with a very good friend of mine named Daniel Grauer. Daniel is an author who wrote 
the book Psychedelic Consciousness, Plant Intelligence for Healing Ourselves and Our Fragmented World. And you'll see from this interview that Daniel is extremely knowledgeable on the subject. Psychedelic Consciousness was a great read. It's an examination of the use of psychedelics for understanding ourselves, connecting with the world around us, and enacting outer change through inner transformation. We talk about the history of psychedelics and how they have how they were moved into the dark corners of the earth and kept away from Western society almost as myths for a long time. How the science of psychedelics impact our brain and the serotonin receptors, specifically in our brain and the world around us. We discuss the proper set and setting of psychedelic ceremonies. Daniel describes his own personal journey with psychedelics and his background as a writer, a teacher, a speaker, uh, how psychedelics led him to pivot his lifestyle from selling uh, beer, craft beer, distributing that in the U.S. and moving on to something that felt more aligned. One of my favorite quotes from this episode is, what is the major fear that we have of people being able to explore these different states of consciousness. And so, you know, it's just a, a pretty powerful episode to understand what is available to us uh, in terms of changing our understanding of the world and potentially how the world itself is seeking to, as a reaction to this kind of siloed, separate self-centeredness that we seem to have collectively developed, how the world itself is maybe triggering a equal and opposite reaction with the reemergence of psychedelics into the forefront of consciousness over the course of the last decade or so. And there's some incredible resources in the show notes, so as always, check them out. Uh, Daniel's a friend, so please, if you're interested in learning more, give his book a purchase. I've given a link to that in the show notes as well. I highly recommend it. It's a great read, and you'll learn a lot more about it from Daniel himself. So without anything further from me, I wish you all a blessed October. It's October 7th, 2020 right now. And fall in New York. Leaves are changing. Beautiful time of year in spite of it all. All right. Feel free to reach out if ever you need anything. Take care. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the Look Up podcast. We've been uh, waiting on this for for a couple of months now, and uh, unlike most great podcast hosts, as I mentioned, I I didn't finish the book yet, but I've read most of it, and I'm just really excited for the listeners to be able to hear your perspective on psychedelic consciousness. Thanks so much, man. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to talk about it as well. Cool. Well, I think a great place to start is I would love for you to share your journey with psychedelics. Uh, and I, I think that's probably the best starting place considering it's likely your entry point into that world and has helped you develop your own thinking on the power of psychedelics and why, why you believe they're uh, almost an emergent phenomenon 
to check the current status of the of the world, and we'll get into that later. Absolutely. So this is a this could be a nice long long story and long journey, but I'll try and make it as as concise as possible. We'll see where it goes. But to start off, I had my first psilocybin experience when I was 16 years old, and you know, like a lot of folks, I came into it in a slight recreational context. You know, I had smoked a little bit of cannabis at that point and maybe wasn't so sure what I was getting into, but I had done some research and and was incredibly uh, interested and, and, and certainly curious about what was going to be going on there. And that experience turned out to be quite uh, a transformational moment in my life. Um, I may have not had the words to say it exactly this way then, but I think as a, as a child, like many of us, I always suspected that there was, there was a magical quality to life, that there was something bigger going on that maybe wasn't necessarily being explained in the schooling system or, you know, how our, how our current society and our current paradigm uh, views the world. And in that moment, it felt that this great suspicion that I had was finally confirmed that there was this incredible otherness happening, that there was a, there was a magic to the world that wasn't being discussed. And there was most certainly a livingness to the world. Um, of course, like, like many other people, I walked outside and, and felt the trees breathing. And for me, it was kind of the first time I actually not only conceptualized nature being alive, but directly experiencing it. And this was, this was a major, major shift for me. Again, I may not have been able to, to say it so articulately at the time, um, but from there, it opened up this door of fascination. And at the time, there wasn't that much um, media presence about the research that was happening. A lot of it wasn't happening yet because, of course, from the 1970s until the late 1990s and early 2000s, research was cut off. So, you know, it felt I had a society telling me that that, that experience was wrong. And inside, I actually felt it was quite right and quite incredible. And there was something to be found there, not only to benefit myself, but society as a whole. So it brought me on a whole journey of, um, again, trying to figure out what is going on in these states of consciousness. So I started exploring uh, spirituality. I started exploring philosophy. When I was 22, my aunt and uncle taught me transcendental meditation. Um, nice. And I, I just started getting deep into, you know, what's, what's behind the curtain here and, and what's What's this route of knowledge that maybe isn't being spoken about in the classrooms? Um, and the more I dug into that, the more fascinated I'd become. And I continued to uh, experiment with, with various other psychedelics and almost had a, a practice, I would say, and started getting my hands on any, any literature I could find on it, whether it was... You know, some of the Carlos Castaneda books, which have, you know, are a bit contested in their in their accuracy, and, you know, some other stuff around there. And, of course, reading Terrence McKenna and, and Rob Doss and uh, Aldous Huxley. And um, I was I was fascinated. And so for me, that was that was really where I was getting a lot of my my learning from. Um, and I would say the next big jump for me in my in my psychedelic journey, if you will, um, happened at the age of 25. I went down to Peru, had a very, very profound ayahuasca experience that I spoke about, uh, I speak about in detail in the book. And I had always felt this way in what I'm about to say, but I woke the next day and I had such a spiritually transformational experience, such a personally beneficial experience that the idea that these plants and mushrooms could be illegal felt like the most insane thing, the rudest thing, and the deepest affront 
uh, against my basic freedoms and and all of our basic freedoms that perhaps is, has, has ever existed, you know, to disrupt uh, humans from the natural world and say, you can't enter, you can't interact with these specific uh, plants and mushrooms is, is, is quite insane. And so I woke up that day and that's really when I started writing this book. Uh, you can say it started a bit earlier, but I felt a great injustice had been done. And in that sense, I, I, I had to, I had to write about it and I didn't know where it was going or what it would become, but it did end up being this book. Um, and you know, that practice has, has continued alongside, uh, meditation, which I think are work very synergistically together and perhaps is something we could talk about. Um, and now actually to add on a, a, one more end of the, of, of the larger scale psychedelic journey, if you will, I recently had an experience, I guess it was about a year ago. And after I'd gotten back from that, uh, ayahuasca journey, there were two big things that started happening in my life. One, I started a business importing beer and wine. I was very passionate about beer and craft beer at the time. Two, I started writing this book. All of a sudden, six years later, this book is about to be published, and I'm looking at it and, and talking about being in harmony with with, uh, with the earth and shifting our actions to be more in harmony. Here I was shipping beer halfway around the world and contributing, you know, to global warming. Uh, also, at this time, yeah, it was a big it was a big kind of dissonance that started to form within me, and. Um, and so I sat with this and it was also right around this time. I just finished reading the Bhagavad Gita. I was thinking about how to be a, more of service to the world. It was right when the international panel of climate change came out with a report that we have one point. It's not a uh, two degrees above uh, pre-industrial levels. That's the tipping point. It's actually 1.5 degrees and we're on track to hit that around 2040. So there's a lot converging in this time period. And again, it created this, this great dissonance. And I was meditating on it and thinking, oh, man, what am I what am I going to do here? And after about two weeks, I said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to ask the mushrooms. This is a really important decision here. And again, I won't go into too many of the details because it would take a long time. But I ended up seeing a great vision of earth, human harmony of myself living on a piece of land uh, in harmony with nature and with others. And I actually saw myself um, having the conversations to sell that business and to move forward from that business and to start aligning my deep-seated values with my actions. So that took on a, a radical integration, if you will. And I just took a journey visiting uh, various eco-villages and intentional communities throughout Asia, Europe, and the States, which then eventually led me to where I am now, which is living in a homesteading community in the Hudson Valley. So those are the three experiences amongst many that I like to um, focus on for my larger scale psychedelic journey because they've deeply, deeply affected, affected my life. Um, and for me, it's been, it's been very personal. It's been very revelatory, uh, very purposeful, adventurous, and certainly, certainly spiritual. Um, and so that's been the, the, the arc for me in a, in a condensed, a condensed time period as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing that um, bit of your journey. I think it's brave, you know, even, even though psychedelics are becoming more part of the the consciousness and people are more publicly aware of them, you know, Paul Stamets coming out with um, fantastic fungi uh, documentary and uh, Michael Pollan releasing, um, I guess, how to lose your mind, I think is what it's called. You know, Sam Harris speaking about these things. It's, it's, uh, it's great. And, and yet there's still a stigma, right? And these, these substances are still, you know, in, in various legal, um, jurisdictions, not acceptable. And so I think the more people come out with a lucid, uh, framework, 
and a lucid, like clearly well thought out art, you know, articulate uh, description of their experience plus, um, you know, positive outcomes from those experiences. I think the more we will realize as a collective just how how wrong that decision was, uh, just as the war on drugs itself feels like something that is so obviously been a failure has obviously been a failure in the United States. Um, when you said psilocybin, just for the listeners, so psilocybin is the uh, is the main psychoactive component in uh, in mushrooms, right? In, in, in quote unquote magic mushrooms. But uh, is there anything else you you want to share about that connection there? Um, yeah, in in um, in those specific mushrooms that we're talking about, there's psilocybin and there's uh, psilocin. Um, and however, the main uh, active psychoactive uh, component of it is the psilocin, and there's an effect of the psilocin as well. But when you're uh, consuming the natural mushrooms themselves, of course, there's a, what's been called an entourage or ensemble effect because there's many other compounds working uh, simultaneously together to create. Uh, the biochemical uh, communication or effect that we're, we're receiving. Um, but when uh, we're talking about in the research setting, in the lab setting, and in, in, in a lot of therapeutic contexts, what they're doing is they're isolating psilocybin it, itself. Um, and so that's, that's generally the common, the common word that's, that's used to talk about these, these mushrooms. I think um, this is actually a great, a great place to go in terms of like, you re- you reference some physiology in your in your book as to what is actually happening when we consume psychedelic compounds, and it varies by compound necessarily, but um, just high level, what what parts of your of your brain and other elements of your body are being impacted when you consume psychoactives? Yeah, that's a really that's a really fun fun topic right there. So, yes. um, as you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Michael Pollan earlier, and he um, did a great job at popularizing uh, some research done by Robin uh, Carhart Harris that's focused on brain imaging under the influence of psychedelics. And what they found at this point is that the main one of the main areas that's affected is the default mode network of the brain. So that's the the seat of the ego. It's kind of the hierarchical, you know, functioning that's called, like, you know, controlling the connections of the rest of the brain. And so what they're finding in those situations is uh, psychedelics cause a, cause a decrease in the default mode network. And so what that happens is your sense of self gets lowered. You might experience some ego dissolution, some experiences of, of mystical unity, um, and also what they've seen is it's leading to an increase of connections in the remainder of the brain, right? So that's causing uh, shifts in perception, shifts in cognition, shifts in memory, uh, the, way we, the way we perceive uh, and take in sensory data and environmental information. Um, and, of co- and this is in effect what they think is the main functioning of how these psychoactive plants, mushrooms, and substances are causing uh, healing for people who are suffering from PTSD, addiction, depression, uh, anxiety related to terminal illness, which they think they're getting stuck in certain thought patterns. And then this allows them to break outside those thought patterns, create new neural networks in the brain from these connections. 
So that's what's happening in the brain. Uh, subjectively, what what is being reported is an effect of an inner healer coming about, that there is something inside that has an emotional charge, whether it's a memory uh, that's related to an experience that wants to be identified and wants to be healed. Uh, and I think when we step out as these unified perspectives, we can, in our, in our wholeness and our expansiveness, we could, our entire being feels that a bit more. And so it rises to the surface and you can, again, experience it, identify it, hopefully accept it. And then this helps in the process to then move forward, of course, to integrate that in your life uh, is, is very, very important. Uh, but an interesting thing about this, this brain uh, talk or this, this, this paradigm is it, it's really focused on the individual, right? And it's really focused on this idea that consciousness is originating in the brain and, uh, and again, a, a, a separate thing when in reality, there's no, there's no research that says consciousness originates in the brain. Um, you know, Aldous Huxley at one point was talking about it being, you know, our brains are actually, you know, everything is consciousness and our brains are a reduction valve to make us think that we're, uh, individual units. And so there's another area of research that isn't spoken about, uh, so regularly in the, in the psychedelic community yet, cause it's, there's some early stuff, but, um, I want to thank Stephen Buhner for his book, Plant Intelligence and the Imaginal Realm, for opening me up to this world of, of research and how it affects us physiologically, because um, I think it, it really taps into, okay, nature and everything is conscious and, and we're just, we're receiving certain parts of it. And so what's also happening is these plants and mushrooms and these uh, uh, semi-synthetic and uh, synthetic substances such as LSD and MDMA are innovations on the serotonin molecule itself. And that, that molecule is found all throughout nature. In fact, the majority of neurotransmitters in our brain is found all throughout nature. They're kind of these repeated patterns. So when you look at psilocybin mushrooms, when you look at uh, mescaline-containing cacti, such as peyote and San Pedro, uh, DMT-complaining plants and mixtures, we're talking about innovations on this molecule. And what happens, it, it binds to our our 5H2A receptors in our brain. Uh, and this is, you know, it binds to some other receptors, but this is what they believe is causing the main, the main uh, effects, if you will. And what's fascinating about those receptors is in humans and in uh, other uh, living beings with their analog 5A, 5A receptors, they're really tasked with filtering the information that comes from our environment, whether it's sound, whether it's uh, uh, sight, whether it's uh, uh, electromagnetic impulses, whatever it is, um, what's happening is our, our neural network is naturally going through the process of taking that in, uh, filtering it, deciding what to do with it. Whatever we don't need is tossed aside. Like as in when we're having this, this conversation right now, if there's something, a noise that's happening in the background, you're probably not paying attention to it. You're focused on our, on our conversation right here. And so it's a high function. This happens naturally on its own. However, the stuff that's important to our survival, to our focus, uh, that gets processed. That's, that gets brought to the front of our attention to kind of make complex thing pretty simple. So what Stephen Buhner found in a lot of this early research is finding is that when those five uh, H2A receptors are activated, we can take in more sensory data about our environment, right? So if you're uh, out, if, if you're a human, if you're any animal, if you're a plant, then you're probably want to 
want to develop some sort of relationship with these compounds. And, and in fact, there is a there's a there's a serotonin innovative plan in every ecosystem on the on the planet right now, and it's for good reason because when these uh, receptors are activated, either through the help of these plants or through their own natural their own natural way. Uh, again, we can take in and process more sensory data about our environment. So what does that mean? That means when we have more information, we can adapt a little bit more. Uh, and what's also fascinating is if so much of this information is processed, the barrier between self and environment begins to thin. And you realize that you are not a separate individual, but that you are part of a collective, that you are part of a whole. And that barrier is actually quite thin to non-existent. So I think that is actually what's causing these great ego dissolution and unifying effects. And then this information is coming in and then that's also causing this, you know, shift in cognition, perception, memory. So it's, I like to talk about it from both directions, right? Because in the default mode network, we're talking about from the brain. When you're talking about the 5H2A receptors, you're talking about information from the external world all of a sudden infiltrating the internal world. And when that happens, when there's a great unifying experience, it leads to increased cooperation. Uh, of course, with these, with the research, we're showing increased empathy, increased sociality, uh, you know, increased nature relatedness, which leads to pro-environmental behavior. Um, so these are incredibly, incredibly important plants and mushrooms and tools to not only help us heal, to help ecosystems heal, to help the earth heal. So I think those are, again, two, two directions to look at it and they, 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 they complement each other. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, um, you know, I often think about the brain as an antenna, um, that we can tune two different frequencies with practice and the frequencies or the information that we're gathering, um, are all around us floating in the ether, let's call it, you know, potentially ideas are just ethereal. They're out there. They're not ours to, to own or hold. It's not my idea. Oftentimes we see new concepts, um, emerge in different parts of the world at the same time. Um, thinking of like certain technological innovations that have happened, uh, in the past, there's a number of examples there. And to me, that's just further, further proof to this kind of connecting connective tissue that's exists all around us within certainly within earth um this kind of floating organism or gaia as we'll we'll speak more about and uh i think it's within potentially like uh, you know this this also leads to complex questions because then we start to think about well well one question i have i'd love to get your thoughts on is like why why have humans emerged or evolved towards a consciousness of separateness like what you know you mentioned this briefly in your book you talk about kind of the evolution of humanity towards um from kind of hunter-gatherer nomadic living towards the agrarian lifestyle and i know this is something that you've all know harari has mentioned in his book sapiens i guess this is a question that can't be answered by humans but what is your hypothesis as to why we have evolved towards separateness over time yeah, sure. So I think um, you nailed it spot on with uh, with Harari and Sapiens. I mentioned that in the book as well, where we did go from hunter gatherers to more agrarian. And as he mentions, this created the first bit of self centeredness as as we know it. You know, this is my land. This is my property, rather than a more expansive of 
we, I mean, we are the land and this is all shared land. And, you know, and so, you know, sometimes when you really go into the idea of land ownership gets a little bit ridiculous. Um, cause again, we are part of it. Um, but you know, at this point, yeah, farming came into play and this is my house. This is my farm. This is my land really started to bring in this self-centeredness. And I think over time that progressed and I kind of zoom out and, uh, then go many thousand years later to when philosophy first came about in, um, in Greek culture. And this is something that, that many other thinkers have, have identified. Um, and I, I actually spent a lot of time just reading through this timeline of philosophy to try and figure out certain moments and certain quotes when this, this art came about. It's fascinating. You can, you can kind of feel it. Um, and so you have Plato and Socrates, and they're talking about uh, the importance of ration and reason in the mind, which you know, from our scientific objective perspective is, is of course very important, but there's an interesting note in there where they talk about the body being a hindrance and something that needs to be brought into control from the mind and reason and ration. But what's going on with our body, right? We now know the body is the place of, of deep sensing, of deep intuition. Uh, the place of heart is, of course, of, of emotional sensibility and the ability, not only that, to take in electromagnetic pulses uh, from the world as well. So there's things happening in our body that is a place of receiving knowledge as much as it's happening in our mind. But it seemed we continue to shift into the mind. And so I then continue uh, over to Descartes. Uh, and many people have spoke about the Newtonian uh, Cartesian paradigm, which calls a really important shift. And Descartes, for deductive, from deductive reasoning, you know, in the I think, therefore I am uh, idea is pretty much saying, I only know that I exist. Right. So you become this mode of consciousness. And what does that do to everything and everything else? Well, you're you're other. Right. So you're you're a threat. I don't even know that you exist. And he he goes further into this thing of senses as well to say that they uh, they cannot be trusted. And it's only this kind of blurry thing. And, and there's nothing to be found there. Um and on top of that, he was he was the first one to look at natural philosophy, how our world work through the lens of mathematics. And he started coming up with these formulas, these these laws of motion. And then, of course, Newton came in and, and picked up on this and created a brilliant mathematical formation of our of our entire world. And of course, um, all of these all of these laws of physics, which we now study to these to this day. And so it really in my mind, uh, and, and, and many other thinkers, for the next uh, couple hundred, three hundred years, we started creating these these linear, measurable, mathematical models about not only our world, but our internal world as well. So we have great sciences that come out of it. We have great medicine that comes out of it. We have great technology that comes out of it. All things that we've, we've benefited and, and certainly which are not bad. But in that process, it created this reductionist mindset. Everything became reduced. Everything became separate, right? Because we were studying individual little parts. And what happened is I think in our focus on, um, on these parts, we lost, we lost the whole, right? We lost our understanding of connection to each other. When we're measuring everything around us, our world becomes a biological machine. It's not this place of incredible livingness that we're interacting with, that we're, that we're innately a part of, you know, the air that we're, that, that we're taking in clearly comes from outside us, as does the, wa the water, as does the food, as does so much of our, our medicine, our, our everything comes from outside of us. But all of a sudden, that outside became a machine. It became a resource, 
And similarly, every other individual becomes a potential threat because if I don't even really know that you exist in the, in the you know, in the Cartesian mind, <laughs> you know, you might be out to get me. You're another thing. And I want to, you know, I need to, I need to ground myself right here. I need to, I need to maximize everything in my self-interest. And when there's, when there's so much otherness, I need to protect myself against this otherness. And if, if nature's just a resource, well, I can just extract that and just destroy that until it runs out, because it's not a big deal. It's not alive, right? It's not like this interactive thing. And so I think these are the, the this is the mindset that built um, over many, many thousand years, and it kind of went on without check. And it's not to say that it wasn't leading towards some sort of progress, because now here we are talking about it. Um, but it certainly infiltrated, and it's also not to say that every single person held this mindset. Of course, we have great spiritual teachers and leaders, um, that were preaching mystical truths and the, the unity of everything. And, um, you know, of course there are many of us today, um, who are, who are thinking in, in a different mindset. Um, however, this is the permeating ideology. This is a permeating thought that is taught in our education systems. And, uh, certainly what built our governmental systems, our economic systems, um, uh, our, our infrastructures are all centered in this idea of separation, of deep, deep fragmentation between ourselves, between, uh, between nature, and even, even from the results of our actions. Uh, and of course, this, this takes the form in many different ways socially. I mean, we're seeing the deep, the deep polarization and, and the fractures in reality that we're experiencing in the political climate right now. I mean, it's almost, you know, as if we're, we're living in completely different worlds. And yeah, there's this, there's this natural desire to want to connect. And so we, we go up in these groups and we say, oh, I get the connection here, but out there, that's, that's them. And, and we're, we're versus them, right? And all of a sudden, you know, when we're individual, we just want to protect our, our ourselves and our house and everything again is a threat. And so you get the desire for power and the desire for control, for greed, for deep nationalism. I mean, it's pretty it's pretty entrenched. And when you start looking at it that way, it, it takes form almost almost everywhere you look. And so I think this is this is the thing, in my opinion, and many others uh, opinion as well of what needs to be healed. It's our, our deep disconnection from each other and from the natural world. And when you work on that level, when you go the opposite, things start to change. Um, and you want to, when you realize this deep interconnection, this deep interrelationship, this deep livingness, all of a sudden you don't want to harm anything. You want to heal things. You want to respect things. You want to revere, I shouldn't even say things, you know, you want to, um, uh, you want to thank all these living beings around you and try and help in their regeneration and the continual vitality and the sustenance and, and the love. It's just such a different shift. And I think that's really what we're talking about here. It's it's going towards one way or the other. As I talk about in the book, we're approaching a crossroads. And so um, it has many this 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 ideology of, of fragmentation also takes form in our mind, but I'll, I think I'll cut it. I'll cut it there just to explain your question about how how it developed. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a great thread. I mean, I have I have questions around, um, you know, I have my own personal questions as I kind of grapple with these ideas as well around like, you know, when I look around at nature, even in a even in a psychedelic journey at times, I mean, there can be some destructiveness within nature itself, right? Just as humans are a part of nature, there is you know, even, even at like a plant level, when you speed things up, plants competing for resource, you know, conifers versus angiosperms, um, 
in terms of like forest fires and the way that they evolve in a space. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's like simultaneously this, I think Watts like described it really well. He talks about, you know, you can look around and see the human is basically just like a pair of like a set of teeth, just like gnashing away and like walking around, just like needing to like eat. And, and that's really it and just consume and, and and that can be a really ugly vision of the world, um, and that's probably an accurate vision of the world. But then you can also move beyond that that view and simultaneously hold that that gnashing, you know, gnawing kind of hunger is just a part of it all as well. And so, you know, I guess it's it's like, um, well, one one I mean, maybe it's a good question to ask is like why. Why is there backlash against this frame of thinking, this kind of like unity thinking um, that kind of re reacts to it as as this is woo-woo or this is, you know, this is kumbaya utopian thinking that is not really, you know, the outcome of which is is um, not not where the, the people who hold these views are actually projecting we go, but instead we, it leads to some other destructive dystopian outcome. Yeah, that's a great question. And I like how you mentioned it. Of course, destruction is part of, is part of the system as is death, right? And death itself is also part of a deep cycle of interbeing, of course, of death of life, of a transmission of energy that is continually uh, feeding a cycle here. And uh, what we're looking at on the whole, and this kind of breaks into a bit of, of Gaia theory mindset, is the overall system on every single uh, uh, concentric level is looking for some sort of, like how Buner called it, homeodynamis, right? Which is some sort of continually adaptive balance uh, and moving towards higher levels of complexity to achieve increased survivability. And again, to keep on kind of surfing this, surfing this. So it's not to say in a unified world that there's not still competition and that there's not still destruction because those are inherent parts of the system. Right. But it's still, these are all, these are aspects of a larger whole. And I think that's an important thing uh, to talk about here. Right. And so to the idea that, that unity is a, is, is a woo woo thing. I mean, it's kind of, it's, I guess it could be taken as so, and at its surface level, it could be perceived as so. But when you start looking into the nature of reality, you cannot find the separateness from things. It actually doesn't exist. We are living in an incredibly, incredibly complex world, right? And it's all completely interrelated in this crazy, like I said, destruction, life, death, balance. And actually what's being found is, of course, competition's part of it. But... Um, what is also found is that there is an incredible amount of mutual and symbiotic relationships. And in fact, that's what leads to the greatest success. So sure, if we're just like, if we're just sitting here talking about uh, uh, the concept of unity, it can get quite, quite woo-woo. But if you're integrating the concept of unity, which is moving forth in your life and trying to take, uh, trying to take action on that idea, Again, taking this this deep seated value um, and and trying to put it forth into action. Maybe using um, not to talk like 
you know, so highly or whatever about, about myself, but like as, as an example of, um, that dissonance that I was feeling about my business. And then all of a sudden in the midst of a psychedelic experience, there's some unity. I'm saying, Ooh, that's actually not aligned, right? This is now, this is now an idea that deserves some action. And so I move forward from that business. I move forward into my life of now attempting to live in that way of growing, you know, various, you know, various plants and trying to live in increasing harmony. So I think that's really where the, where that break is, right? Is it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to try and act on it. And it's also another thing to say that, that unity is just, is just, you know, uh, fluffy love, uh, you know, kumbaya. It's like I said, it's also destruction. And when you look at the, uh, you know, the larger, the larger guy in picture, you know, what you're seeing is these, these concentric flows of information and this concentric flow of, of adaptation. And the deeper that, um, we look into these systems, which are essentially, again, these are these are neural networks that are going from individual to collective to further collective to further collective, and it's all attempting to work together to increase, you know, not only individual survival but the, the collective survival as well. Um, in all of these parts, there are these 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 crazy interacting factors, and of course, when we look in uh, ecosystems, as as Paul Stamets popularized, there's a, you know the mycelial underground network and uh you know trees bacteria uh, of course as i mentioned you know are all connected through this through this web underneath the ground and they're feeding water they're feeding nutrients and medicine to certain parts of the ecosystem they're feeding certainly information to each other and so this is a great example of uh complexity in a, in in unity and it's and it's highlighting diversity it's highlighting the 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 more wild it gets, the more diverse it gets, the stronger the system is, so long as it's maintaining that cohesiveness, so long as it's maintaining the understanding that we are part of a larger whole. Same thing, you look at the cells in our body, of course, they're kind of autonomous individuals, but they're also simultaneously working towards the survival of the whole. And do those cells, can those cells fathom us sitting here and having a conversation as a larger collection of cells? I don't know. Probably not in the same way. Can we sit here and, <laughs> and, and, and try and fathom the great intelligence of ecosystems, the great intelligence of the earth of the whole that we are all inevitably part. Right. And so this is all, um, this is all, it's all, it's all part of it. And you can try and say that unity is a fluffy idea, but when you look at this, at this reality, it's just, it's just the nature of nature itself. And the more we learn that, the more we lean into that, the more we can begin to start replicating uh, life-bearing systems and put ourselves as a part of these systems rather than, you talk about dystopian, where we've led ourselves as a result of thinking that we're fragmented rather than unified is destroying the entire world, burning down the entire world. Um, you know, we have uh, 68% of the population of vertebrates from 1970 until uh, 2016, uh, again, declining by 68%. Um, we're polluting our water, we're polluting our, our, uh, our air, we're pumping chemicals into our food system. We have, you know, 60 years left of our, of our topsoil if, if we keep on farming that the way that we're doing it. Um, of course, there's, there's deep inequalities, there's deep divides, there's deep... Uh, systemic racism, there's deep, you know, injustices. These are, this is, this is, I think, a 
ton more dystopian uh, than a reality that we're looking at that's unified of trying to lean in to these to these symbiotic connections. So that would be my my response to that. Yeah, I'm, I think that's that's a great point. Um, I think it's all you know, it's all part like one thing I will I will maybe mm, I'm just thinking like, even those disconnects and everything are part of this greater, this greater process that we don't understand. And one, one element that I thought was really cool in your book was this idea that, you know, the resurgence of psychedelic consciousness is actually part of the check against what you just described. And perhaps like, I'll take it a step further. Perhaps if we hadn't accelerated to this place with the kind of separateness and ego driven philosophies and technological technologically driven, you know, um, capitalist driven progress, and I'm putting progress in air quotes, you know, there, there has been clear progress in some areas and for some, but in, for others, no, you know, we might not even be able to, to have gotten to this place where we're having these conversations. So it's kind of a fascinating, you know, question of where, how does it all play in, in the grand dance um, between both light and dark with, with all of that being a part of a part of it, you know, just like the images that we as humans tend to ignore the, the fungus, you know, and, and larvae eating the human corpse after it dies and gets placed into the ground without a box. Like, you know, that seems so ugly to us. And yet it, it creates nourishment for the soil and the ground. And yet we avert our eyes. And so perhaps it's like, you know, as I'm sure you've done through some of your psychedelic journeying as well, it's like looking at the shadow really with, with open eyes and even, even becoming grateful for the shadow in some ways and appreciative of it because of its role in, in bringing forth, um, knowledge and light is, is super cool. I, um, I wanted to, I wanted to like take that thread a little bit further because I think there's, I think there's kind of this woo woo, um, question that a lot of folks ask about unity theory and Gaia theory, um, and this one collective oneness. Um, and then there's even, it can go even further towards uh, a belief that these ideas are dangerous. And you mentioned, you know, in the seventies, there was this, this cut in psych funding for psychedelic research and a few things happened. Um, I, my question is when did, uh, when did this begin? When did psychedelics begin to be perceived as, as public enemy number one? And uh, why do you believe um, this idea of unity is actually not only viewed by some as, as um, something to joke about, but also even further something that's, that's dangerous? Hmm. Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to start off. You mentioned, uh, earlier, and we were talking about the, the destruction of the natural way of things. And in this same way, as you just mentioned, this whole, the whole path that we've taken, the whole ideology of fragmentation that's come about, everything that's come with it. Yes. Is all part of whatever is happening here. And hopefully it's all part in leading us uh, into a direction that is going to lead towards increased complexity, increased survivability, whether for ourselves or for the whole. And no matter what, there's great, great learning in, you know, in this process. In the same way, 
when uh, our body is is sick and we return towards healing, there's all of a sudden a great appreciation for being whole and for being healed again. So this is not to say, you know, pick a polarity of, of bad or good. It kind of just is, and it's the direction that it's taken. And if, hopefully, it leads us into... Um, a larger scale awakening to be able to, to move forward into this way, either uh, hopefully before we experience an immense amount of catastrophe and crisis, which, which we already are, or afterwards, you know, this could be looked at in, in a beneficial light and beneficial again for us, or even just looking at the entirety of everything living. Um, and you also brought up a great point about the history of psychedelics, not only in American history, but in larger history as well. And so we don't exactly know when we, when we first started interacting with psychoactive plants. And of course, there's a stone Dave theory that Terrence McKenna put out there that is I actually, you know, yeah, 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 which is, you know, which is, you know, it's still a sign of mushrooms that, that help lead towards our consciousness and uh, the creation of language and being able to reproduce more and the increase um, or the expansion uh, in our neocortex that evolutionary theorists don't have, don't have an example for, but certainly about 20 20 or 30,000 years ago, we start, we start seeing cave paintings all around the world. And there's absolutely references to, to psychoactive plants. And of course, where do we draw the line? We all know that, that our, our, our food and our medicine comes from the natural world. And of course, psychoactive plants were part of this, um, were part of this mix here. And when, you know, I think there's you know, 10,000, 12,000 years ago, we start getting very concrete evidence of, of carbon dated materials with psychoactive plants. And uh, also shamanism is uh, ubiquitous across every single continent. And as we know, through storytelling, as we know, through, again, through cave drawings, through the various archaeological sites, uh, psychoactive plants were involved in, in, in this healing process. And not only that, when we start looking into civilizations of the past, there's sacred plants and mushrooms that are, that are mentioned in almost every single one of them for ritualistic, for religious, for spiritual, for, for healing purposes. And I think this is actually part of the human experience and it's only recently and, and, and other time periods that we've deviated away from it. We also see kind of, I'll say, some variation of a drug law in, uh, in Greek culture with the Eleusinian mysteries that are brought up a lot. Um, Gordon Wasson, Albert Hoffman, and I think Carl uh, Ruck put out a theory that, that in these 4,000-year uh, initiation rituals, they were drinking what was called kaikion. And again, they think from their research that it was uh, from some sort of a fungus, probably the ergot fungus, which LSD is extracted from. And so even in, in early civil, where we get our civilization from, you know, at least the founding ideas from it, uh, there was there was these initiation rituals to look into something transcendent, to look into something mysterious and to gain uh, revelation and to gain to gain healing from it. And at that time period, I forgot who the, the ruler was, but at some point eventually shut it down. Uh, he was the, the, the head of the church and said it was too, maybe it was too woo-woo, it was too pagan, it was too, it was too nature-based, right? Um, and so the history gets a little bit difficult to follow after that. Uh, but when you look in the, in the Americas and certainly in South America, there is uh, continuous use of, of various psychedelics that we know today. And when the Inquisition went in and invaded, 
down there. Um, we actually see our first modern drug law in 1620 was when peyote became illegal. And the reason that they decided was it was for uh, divining future events or the thefts of cer- or the theft of certain items. And so they associated with, with witchcraft. And really what we're looking at here is a ruling entity um, deciding to make something illegal that they don't understand. They're used to a religious experience coming from the church. Here, you have a direct religious connection with the divine that is coming through uh, that is coming through plants and mushrooms. And of course, that's going to feel strange if you have no experience of it. If you're trying to control a population, you're not going to say, oh, great, let me experiment with these two. You're going to say, you can't do that. And we're going to burn you and we're going to hang you at the stake because that's your source of... Um, at your source of wisdom, of, of spirit, it's, it's an insane affront against human freedoms. It's an insane atrocity. But this is repeating that, you know, that we've seen throughout history. And so um, for a long time in Western European civilization, you have the, the stomping out of these indigenous practices and the stomping out of the ideas that came with it. And in the majority, in a lot of those cultures, there was a balance between humans and nature. There was an understanding about, of course, the connected nature of this. This isn't a fluffy thing. This is this is innately part of being human. And when you realize you're, you're part of this world, again, you want to revere it, you want to respect it, um, and you want to protect it. And these are, these are, of course, like the main components in the majority of indigenous cultures of principles to live by. Uh, so there's nothing woo about that. Our survival is is dependent upon the natural world that we're interacting with. Um, and so this continues. And, and, and again, in, in the Western mindset um, and, and also indigenous culture, the use of psychedelics gets, gets very low. It gets very hidden. It goes out into the desert, into the jungles. It's very dangerous to practice these practices, right? In Western civilization, there is not even the acknowledgement that magic mushrooms exist anymore. For like a, a couple hundred year time period after that, they go into the into the category of, of myth and folklore. At mm-hmm. some point, there was even uh, a belief that peyote was mushrooms. You know, these these didn't exist in our mind, uh, in our collective mind as well. Then uh, in the eighteen hundreds, you have uh, at least the the Western discovery of ayahuasca use, uh, peyote as well. And then the 1900s, of course, in the 1940s, was when Albert Hoffman first synthesized and discovered LSD and ingested it. Uh, and in 1955, Gordon Watson became the first Westerner to take part in uh, a psilocybin mushroom ceremony in 1957 was when he wrote about it in Time magazine. And as, as we all know about what was happening in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there's a lot of research going on with psychedelics, and maybe we don't all know, in the 40s, in the 40s and 50s. And then, of course, there was a massive um, counterculture explosion of the use of psychedelics. So all of a sudden, when you go from more or less a society that's living in black and white without access to such incredibly profound, incredibly powerful substances and tools that are, are, are revelation inducing, that are, that are spirituality and, and creative and, and healing. Um, it's going to be quite intense. And we didn't have the continual line of ritualistic guidelines or understanding about what these powerful experiences were. 
right? So it exploded on the scene. It exploded into America. We were just trying to figure out what this was. Then, of course, in the 60s, there were some uh, unfortunate events that happened. There was the, the use of it wasn't understand. And again, this is very powerful. You need to have, you know, the mantra in the psychedelic community has always been set and setting, right? And I also talk about uh, preparation and support and integration for these experiences, preparing and understand what it's going to be like, having someone there to support you, and then also integrating it afterwards. You know, when this was when this was happening all over the world at that time, that information may not have been as readily available. And of course, there were some freakouts. Um, and when there are when there are freakouts happening, that's outside of a religious context. If you're someone who's endowed with protecting the status quo, if you're a leader and you're not understanding what is happening and the deep nature of these plants and mushrooms and their historical use, you're not going to say, oh, let's let's look into this stuff more. You're going to say, we got to put a ban on this. And of course, we now know that that Nixon also had a very racist and a very political agenda to making these substances illegal as well, which there was, you know, the black community using it and the, and the far left as well. So in his mind, uh, he said, all right, and I, I think uh, he, was, he was quoted at some point on, on saying this, is, is we can get both of them together at one time and, and squash, you know, both of these movements if we make these substances illegal. So it's, it's political, it's, it's, it's racist, and it's, and it's based in a lack of understanding. However, it's understandable when you look at it of the way of something extreme that entered into society. And there, you know, again, if you want to protect the status quo, if you want to protect the natural order of things, this is probably going to be your response in such a heated, intense environment rather than trying to understand it. However, like I keep saying, historically, these, these things have always been with us. And I think it's actually these, these experiences um, that kept us in check that kept us in harmony with nature, right? And once that came out, and it's interesting that the timing is in the 1600s when Newton and Newton's and Descartes' theories were proliferating, all of a sudden we didn't have this check, this great experience of unity, this great experience of ego dissolution, understanding that we're a part of the whole. And so perhaps that's when things started to get out of control. All of a sudden, we're in the 19, uh, you know, the 1940s. We're in the midst of end of World War II. There's great destruction happening on the Earth, and all of a sudden, There's Albert Hoffman the atomic dis- bomb. Exactly. All of a sudden, Albert Hoffman discovers LSD and mushrooms come back in our culture. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. However, now you're looking at the most uh, profound and incredible destruction of the largest of, of our larger Earth systems that we that we've seen in in a long, 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 long time. And it's certainly at the results of our hands. And all of a sudden now we see the psychedelic reemergence and the psychedelic renaissance that's happening. And I don't think this is a coincidence at all. I think, I think what it is, is uh, an autoimmune response from the earth itself. I think this is a feedback mechanism in the same way when something is uh, coming into our body that's attacking our body, that's threatening our immune system, cells automatically come together to try and fight off this system. And what's happening there? Maybe the cells are realizing that they're a part of a larger body and they want to protect this because they're part of it. It's tough to say. Similarly, when you look at ecosystems like we're talking about earlier, if something in the ecosystem is threatened, everything works together to come through that mycelial network to try and protect it. Same thing happens on the Earth system on the whole. 
And so I think what we're looking at here is this is all part of a larger immune response for the Earth, which is certainly experiencing a great fever in the midst of global warming and having an incredible, incredible amount of ecosystem destruction happening throughout the entire system. So this is all part of it. I think this is a way to communicate with us instead of trying to explicitly destroy us because we're part of the system and saying, guys, get it together. You're, you're part of this. We're all living this together. Everything around you is living beings. This isn't just some freaking research world. This isn't a plug. All right. Hello, Lookup listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning, Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media. My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to M-A-R-C at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, For those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have.